Your iPad, what were you on? My iPhone. Okay, so the iPad's a little bit better, you think? I think so. Okay, man. So you're in West Virginia, and your name is Jeff, and tell me the rest. Okay, so my name is Jeff Yeager. Um, I'm actually a English professor at uh, a small school in southern West Virginia called Bluefield State University. Um, I've, I grew up here in, in West Virginia, and I grew up in a small county called Wyoming County. And it's about as backwoods as you can possibly imagine. Uh, it's growing up, the county had always gone had gone through a lot of economic turmoil because of the decline of the coal industry. Um, my father is a railroad engineer. He works for Norfolk Southern Railways. And um, <clears throat> growing up, my parents always took me to a bath this church so I grew up uh, Baptist so um, I kind of fell away from it uh, when I, by the time I went to college I don't think it was because you know sometimes you hear these stereotypes of college professors and all a bunch of liberals and all this I don't think it was because of that I think uh, I think uh, I just kind of just grew away from it for a long time and um, of course, the years went by. I went to graduate school to uh, be a professor, and over the course of many years, I I never did anything too heinous, but I kind of, but I definitely uh, sort of distanced myself away from God for a long period of time. And um, well, I got married. Long story short, I moved back to Southern West Virginia from graduate school. Got married and. My wife grew up in um, the Church of Christ tradition. I don't know if you know a lot about that tradition. Um, <laughs> yeah, they they are not so friendly to Catholics. Um, right. But, um, well, we just started talking like, hey, we'd like to go to church. We'd like to pick a church now and get, get, get settled in. And... Um, we did, but but uh, my work, a lot of my work, I teach a lot of courses in like early world literature. So like uh, we go all the way back to the from ancient Greeks up through uh, the present day, uh, ancient Greeks to the present day, or the ancient Greeks up to about the 1600s. So um, in those courses, I teach a lot of things like Dante's Divine Comedy, and um, even like later Protestant, more Protestant works like John Milton's Paradise Lost and um, Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe teach a lot of interesting literature related to Christianity. And most of it has a heavy, heavy Catholic bend because uh, either it happened during the time when there was nothing but Catholicism in the West or. Um, it happened because it was the Protestant reformers' reaction to Catholicism and creating a lot of that art during that time period. So over the years, it kind of felt like um, I was being led to Catholicism, even a little bit with, through my work. And I think I, when I started going to my Catholic parish, 
it kind of felt like this overwhelming feeling like like hey i should i should finally give this a shot um, i didn't really go in with any biases against catholicism because i knew that i knew a lot of the objections like we worship mary and the saints and all that i knew all that was was not true already but i fi- felt this overwhelming compulsion to try it and the rest is history i suppose you could say i went through the i started going in december of 2021 and i started the rcia process a little late but my priest kind of understood like i knew a lot of the basics so i was able to sort of fast track through it and and join the church easter of last year so hey so you're a one-year-old right happy birthday happy anniversary whichever thank you so what's you said that uh, now i had a guest on a few weeks ago stephen boyd and he went to visit the cathedral in Cologne, Germany on a trip to Europe. And he was just blown away by the beauty of the cathedral. And he said to himself, when I get back, I'm going to check into the Catholic Church because this is beautiful. So it was the beauty of the cathedral, the art and everything that kind of attracted and drew him in. And um, he became Catholic. And here you are, an English professor, reading all this literature and writings and all, and it's basically the same thing. You're seeing, you know, the beauty of the Catholic faith in your work, you know, in your passion. So you're just kind of drawn in. Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, in my courses, I would have to explain to my students, like, what are the differences between Catholicism and all these different types of Protestants. Um, so teaching those courses, I just kept reading more and more. And um, I'm pretty much teaching these courses to a 100% Protestant groups. Yeah. Because West, West Virginia, I think, is currently 1% Catholic across the board. I, think that, I, thought, I saw a statistic where whereas low Catholic as it gets. I remember, and I've always heard my parents talk about how when JFK was running for president, that he had to sort of convince West Virginians that he was okay, despite being Catholic. But, um, There's allegiance to America, not the Pope. Right. Yeah, West Virginia is, um, West Virginia has that state kind of, um, kind of obsessed with it. Just to be honest, that whole area. And I went up there. I was going up there in January to to visit. Do you know where Hurricane is? Hurricane. I do. It's, pre- it's pretty close to Huntington, where Marshall University is. Yeah. Well, I've, I've literally got four or five Catholic friends that live in West Virginia, and you know, of course, that song. Can you sing that song for us, John Denver? Country roads take me home. <laughs> Great song, man. It talks about the Shenandoah. And we didn't make it to West Virginia. We made it to the Shenandoah Valley. 
and ended up staying there. But um, my friends that are in West Virginia that are Catholic are pretty fired up. And I guess West Virginia is sort of like a sister state to us because there's a lot of similarities to West Virginia and Alabama, and there's not many Catholics here. So uh, where do you go to have friends and fellowship? Do you have, is your church, is it big enough to have a community? Yeah. Um, as far as before I became Catholic, I didn't, I don't think I knew a single one. And, um, but luckily my church is pretty big. It's, it's in Beckley. Beckley's a pretty substantial community in Southern West Virginia. And there's probably a couple of hundred to 300 people go there on a consistent basis. We have a Saturday evening mass, and two Sunday masses, and all of them are usually pretty full. But I've, I've met lots of times there's complaints, like when you first join a Catholic church, it's hard to meet new people because everybody's so, it's not like when you're in a Baptist church and everybody's going up slapping each other on the back before, before church. Hey, how are you doing? How's life? Everybody's, of course, kneeling and praying before the mass, and usually people leave. Right? Usually, pretty usually people leave right after mass. But my church has a lot of uh, events where it becomes easier to meet people. Um, I went a lot. I'm I'm really close with all of my friends from the RCIA program that I went with. I think uh, there was four or five Protestant converts and two people who were baptized the year that I went that I went in. So I'm really close with pretty much all of them. And we've had, we have stuff like uh, our priest leads uh, Bible studies on like Thursday evenings and we'll do stuff like that. I've met a lot of people that way. Uh, I've become a lecturer in the church and read. And usually that's a conversation starter where people are like, good job reading or something. So uh, yeah. Like, I hope I can read. I'm an English professor, right? I know uh, I'm all self-conscious and on guard today with my P's and Q's. Why did you pick English to go into? Uh, I was a, I was both an English major and a um, history with a minor in philosophy major in uh, college. So I really always was drawn to the humanities. And... Um, I've always enjoyed literature. My most of the literature I work with, I really like American literature, and um, especially I especially work a lot with John Steinbeck, *Rapes of Wrath* with Mike's Men. But um, yeah, I really wanted to teach that subject, and as far as being employable, English was a lot more employable than history or philosophy. So, um, I've got a friend that's an English teacher in Japan. He took a job teaching English in Japan, and he said he ain't never coming back. He said, man, I'm scared to come back to the States. Like, he'll come home for Christmas vacation for the holidays and all the crime and the carjackings out, in, you know, from L.A. And uh, he said, man, it's just over there, there's no crime. And everybody's, you know, it's just a different world. You come home and, you know, it's just police sirens and crime and protests. He said, they don't have any of that over there. But uh, let, 
did you when you were coming through your RCI class? Was there any particular um, part of your conversion experience that was um, difficult? Was there any teaching or anything that kind of uh, was a little tough to swallow? Yeah. So I'll I'll start that question by saying what worked for me, and then then I'll kind of, then I'll kind of break that down into what I'm still sort of sort of discerning today. Even though I'm Catholic, there's still a few doctrines I'm a little iffy on even still. Um, but it's a journey. It's a journey. I, I you know, as a Catholic, I don't mean to sound condescending to other denominations, but you can join a, some of these churches and know everything there is to know about their uh, distinctfulness in a very short amount of time, but you're not going to do that with the Catholic faith. You will never tap out on the yeah. Catholic faith. It's like, it's like drilling for oil and you hit a gusher or geyser, what do they call them, when it's shooting up. It don't ever quit. Catholic, when you hit, tap into the Catholic church, that stuff is shooting up for the rest of your life. Just yeah. like the oil did all over you, getting over everything. So tell me about it. Yeah, so uh, when I started learning about it, I, I've heard other people on your channel before talk about they watch a lot of apologetics videos with Father Mike Schmitz and Bishop Barron and a lot of those personalities on YouTube. So when I started, I watched a lot of those videos. And the first thing that, a couple of the things that really stood out to me first was the nature of the sacraments. Like um, in, in the Baptist church, they have once saved, always saved. Uh, once you pray that sinner's prayer, nothing can ever happen to you. You're, you're sealed in the Lamb's book of life. And uh, well, just thinking about my own life, I realized I judged my own conscience. And I realized that's not, that wasn't true. Um, that was, even though I had done that when I was a, a teenager, uh, my life did not live up to God's standards. And I, one of the first things that really drew me to the church was the sacrament of confession. Like, uh, I sort of, whenever I was prepare, preparing to convert, I would look forward to that because uh, I really wanted to cleanse my soul in that way and the first time that i ever went through the sacrament right before i became confirmed uh, it was probably the best day of my life i walked out of there and felt completely different and a lot of times protestants will argue that you don't need the sacrament you can just pray to god to forgive your sins and um, whether I think that there's, even if you would sort of want to look at it from a secular point of view, I think there's some type of like psychological power in uh, admitting it out loud and getting it off your chest and just hearing those words like you're absolved of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Son, Holy Spirit. So uh, it's, it's, a firm, it's good psychologically just to hear that and know that God is standing is sitting in that room and the priest is just his representative. 
so to speak. They they say that it's an extra layer of bureaucracy that you don't need. You can just do it through prayer, but um, I don't. Just from my own experience, I don't think that's true. They use a different argument for baptism and getting married and all that other stuff. Then you got to have somebody to help you through. Right. Yeah. I've. I've they I've use a middleman. Yeah. You, who needs Who needs the middleman? You don't need the saints as middlemen, right? Just pray directly to God. That's usually there. There are even though there's not one scripture in the New Testament that tells us to go to God and pray when we sin. Not a one. So uh, when you went, were you in there like a long time since it was your first time? I, I kind of went in with like a laundry list of things. And I think I just kind of spit it out as quick as I could. And uh, my priest knew it was my first confession. So. He, t- he told me, like, think of all of the things that you've done since your baptism. And I was baptized when I was 10. So, so 10 to 34, that was a long period of my time to reflect back on. And there's a couple of times after that I went back. I'm like, I forgot about this. So uh, I didn't even get everything I wanted to out of my system the first time. <laughs> but, um, oh, I, I don't think it's tough. I do, I do the same thing. Confession. For the first time, I think when I was like 50, you know, and even I think yesterday I was uh, something come up from when I was a kid. And I was thinking, I don't think I confess that one. Right. <laughs> but when you, when you go in there with your heart, pouring your heart out and you forget something that's forgiven, just bring it up next time. So were you, were you in there like two hours or? 15 minutes or I think it's like 15 minutes or something my very first time um you know if you go to the confession room like you can stand behind the screen or look face to face with the priest I'm my priest and I've become really good close and uh he was like might as well come over here Jeffrey I know your voice so just (laughs) (laughs) oh man that's tough yeah he's a tough one Living where you live, it ain't like you can drive to 25 other Catholic churches and go see a priest you don't know. Right. Uh, kind of... I tried that before, and I found that whenever I've tried that, something happens like the church isn't open for some reason or something. So it's like God's almost telling me, you need to go to your, you need to go to your priest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the sacrament was uh, of confession was really important to my conversion, and also the sacrament of the Eucharist. Uh, I, that was by far, I think, the biggest one for me. Whenever I started learning about Catholic apologetics, I learned about, of course, the Book of John, chapter six, during the uh, during that discourse when Jesus said, when Jesus says, those who uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life. And um, if you look at the book, of, if you look at the book, the book of John is a lot different than the other gospels. The other gospels are more straight up, more narrative. And the book of John is a much more sort of, John was a really talented writer from a literary perspective. And, uh, really, I think so. Between that and Revelation, he he definitely uh, 
he definitely had a very vivid writing style, I think. But I was I was drawn to that because uh, I, I learned that that was the main argument for the for the Eucharist, and even like reading Protestant objections to that, they say, well, that's Jesus is just speaking symbolically there. He's uh, right. He's, Winking at. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, he's not being for real, right? He's he's nice. he's speaking. He's speaking symbolically. And yeah, like, like I actually got into an argument with one of my wife's family members who's a COC minister a while back. I wouldn't say it was an argument; it was it was a good natured discussion. But mm-hmm. um, he he pointed out like, "Hey, Jesus speaks in metaphors all the time, like in the parables. Like he's always speaking mer- metaphorically there." And like in John's gospel. Those parables, he doesn't have parables as far, as far as I recall. Like John's gospel is very literal a lot of a lot of the time. Um, and um, just because the other gospel writers wrote he was speaking metaphorically doesn't mean he's speaking metaphorically in John. And um, but, but by the time you read that discourse in chapter six, and you also um, read other things like when he gave his pre- when he gave his apostles the ability to forgive sins later in the book of John that validated confession of course the Last Supper when you read the Last Supper word for word against John chapter six I feel like I feel like that that was a very overwhelming argument for the Eucharist and that um, you're always constantly being nourished by the Eucharist and sort of um, trying no, trying to make yourself worthy to even take it is is a hard thing to do. So um, that was that was by far the biggest thing for me, and I like to think, being in my profession, I know what a metaphor is. I mean. Uh, I'm an English professor, right? So I, I work with metaphors all the time. And John chapter six is not a metaphor. He's not being metaphorical. He's saying this is. He's not saying this is like. He's saying it is. So um, I, I take that for at face value. Um, a lot of times, a lot of times, I think Protestants try to want to take things at face value. But then they put their own spin on the text that um, isn't taking things at face value, especially with that passage. So, yeah, reading John's gospel, I think, was especially influential. Like, I remember I was sitting up one night. It was like, I'm usually a night owl. I was sitting up one night reading it at like 2 a.m. And then everything just clicked. I was like, wow. So... Yeah, so that was that was definitely an important part of my conversion process. Um, of course, I had doubts about baptism. I'd always heard you don't have to be baptized. Right? You can; it's just an outward expression of your faith. And uh, well, I started I started learning otherwise by reading through the epistles and and whatnot. So this the whole oh, point. Go ahead. Professor Jeff, 
you are an English professor and you just use the most famous word that every Southern guy uses. And I've noticed that my Northern friends say it too. What not? Right. <laughs> this is the first chance I've ever had in my life to talk to a professor and find out what not. What not does what not mean? What does that mean? Uh, what whatsoever, right? What? Yeah, it's like a way of saying etc. Right? I feel like that's what that's what what not means. You know, decorations like um, dollies and uh, what like pictures, icons. My mom would call them what nots. Let's put some what nots up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then uh, like my my youngest son, he's very cerebral, works in computers, and uh, writes, he writes books. And uh, that's his favorite word, whatnot. And then my oldest son's an accountant, and he likes to say whatnot. And I've just been picking up a list. I've been listening to a lot of celebrity interviews just to find out how to interview people, you know, watch interviews. And, man, some real famous and powerful people say whatnot. But yeah, is that word like the, um, is that word a, a colloquial expression? I think so. I, just think, I think that's a part of Southern dialect with, with English. Um, I'm, curi I'm curious, what do you think of my accent being from the Deep South? Does it sound... Does it sound different to you? I'm just curious from a linguistic perspective. If you were my next door neighbor, I would never have any thought that you were not from around here. Okay. I just think, oh, he's a professor in English. I've got to talk right around this guy or make a fool of ah. myself. But, but something interesting, and let me run this past you, and you may not. Agree, you're a professor, an expert. That's Eric down there talking. You see, he's got that little wrench by his name. Yeah. That's his new badge, okay? He's a moderator. And he's got him a big wrench so he can whack a troll. If a troll comes around, he can just whack. Okay, here's what I was going to tell you. Okay. You know, the Appalachians run from where I'm at and at the widest point where you're at. Because you live in the most mountainous state east of Colorado. The whole state is Appalachian. And it goes all the way up into Maine and Canada. So you got this ridge, this region. It's really a region. As much as it is mountains, it's a culture. Now, I read that when the Scotch and Irish settlers immigrated to America and they got into America, that when they uh, traveled to the Appalachians, that it reminded them of where they were from, where, you know, Scotland, England, Northern, you know, it reminded them of home, so they stayed put. Now, there's a place here called Sand Mountain, and it runs from about an hour up the road, it runs all, it's a plateau, and the people that live on Sand Mountain have words they use that only people from the Scotland, you know, the Scottish English border use. 
they pronounce words the same way. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. If you go and trace the English language back to even like the Middle Ages, like when a lot of this literature I teach, if you read something like Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales in its original Middle English, there was a process called the Great Vowel Shifts where people back then pronounced vowels differently than they do now. And um, a lot of the Southern dialect comes from that um, more medieval form of, of English. And they, they spoke that form of English in London. And a lot of, especially with Wales and Scotland, they, those dialects were still preserved. One thing, one thing to note about linguistics is no dialect is better than another. That's, that's a principle of linguistic theory. Like no dialect is better than another. There's what we have called the standard English, which we all aspire to in our writing. But um, no, as far as speech goes, no dialect is better than another. And I've, oh. I've gone to conferences and I've dealt with people that are like, your accent's so exotic, it's so cool, right? I'm like, not really. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's an accent. Yeah. Do you, um, was Jesus Southern? Because he used that word yonder. Yeah, why yeah. oh, <laughs> or yonder? Right. Well, how do you pronounce the word correctly? R I N S E, R I N S E, rinse. Okay, well, up there in that place, they say wrench, uh, and they say oof different, or O O F. I I used to. Uh date a girl from Maine and uh, her parents like put took R's out of everything. They would say, let's go park the car. So mm -hmm. uh, we put R's in everything that doesn't need to be worshipped in D.C. Right? <laughs> My uncle Dempsey, he was famous, you know, he's a football fan and instead of saying Alabama, he would say Alabama. <laughs> instead of Anna, China, red China, and Buick instead of Buick. And they just, you know, they get laughed at going up to New York, but down here, ain't nobody laughing at them. <laughs> you know, because you, you saw Forrest Gump when he would say shrimp. His buddy would say shrimp for shrimp. Right. So do you, I heard in the book of John, there's some, uh, there's some grammar that's unusual the way he wrote compared to the other writers. But I don't know how to articulate my question to you. So I think he, John just speaks in, I mean, he just speaks in symbols and a lot more. His word choice is always really spot on. The kind of, the difference between it is the, the book of John is very literary. It's all about Jesus's seven miracles. It's structured around those miracles. Compared to um, Luke, Aaron. compared to Luke, what did what, you just say about John? Did you say seven miracles? I might, I might have that number wrong. I thought it was seven, uh, but the first there's miracle. 19, of there's 19 places in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where Jesus healed an individual. 19 places, and I think 11 of them were initiated by the person, not by Jesus, but 
where a person approached Jesus for the healing, for the miracle. He didn't just walk up to him because he was being nice. So you're saying that that all. I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, you're saying it's, that it's centered around those events, the book yeah. of John? Yeah, like the first one is when Mary goes to Jesus and asks for his help at the wedding. That's that's the first miracle. And the uh, Last Supper, I think, is last miracle. And the during John chapter 6, when he feeds the crowd, that's one of his miracles. So the whole book is centered around his his miracles more so than mm -hmm. just trying to go from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. So, um, yeah, he, John is, there's a lot of interesting YouTube. I'll have to send you one. There's a lot of interesting videos that talk about it on YouTube from a literature perspective. And yeah, I just, I just think the whole book is structured a little differently than the other ones. I'm not saying John's more authoritative than Luke or Matthew, right? Both the, or Mark, but uh, it's a different flavor of of a way with the way that it's written. He seems more spiritual. You know what I'm saying? Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke is like the facts, right? And exactly. John this hippie stuff. You know that Jesus being the light that lights all men and. You know, he used, you know, he did use a lot of I'm the bread of life. Now, when he says I'm the bread of life, what's the difference between a metaphor and a symbol? Because I don't know. So is there a, a difference? A metaphor. So whenever you get to think about the figure of language, a simile is when you say something is like something. So I think what a lot of Protestants think that. Um, Jesus is speaking in similes more than more than metaphor. A metaphor is you're saying something is like something, but um, or not. You're I take that back. You're saying something is something rather than something is like something. But uh, okay, like this. Okay, let me ask you. I'm I'm your student. Okay, Jesus said, "I'm the bread of life," and to me. That's literal because of the Eucharist. And he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. They're thinking manna. He's thinking Eucharist, right? Yeah. And then when he says, I am the door. I am the, you know, the, the uh, you know, John chapter 10, when he's talking about being the, the gate, that he really is the gate. Because a gate, a gate is an opening, right? This isn't a gate. Like a door where it's a literal opening and he is a literal opening to the Father. Is that a metaphor? Is that what you're saying different than a. So let, let me, let, I'm breaking out my, my Bible here. I'm going to try to give you my argument for, especially the Eucharist and why it's I'm literal. Thinking cap. I'm getting my thinking cap on. So. So when Jesus says, uh, let's see, I'm looking at, your, at the verse you're speaking of. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And uh, whenever he says, 
uh, whenever he speaks especially about eating the flesh and drinking the blood, the Jews get really angry right there, right? Because we know that from Judaism, um, they don't like bloody meat. And they think that Jesus is speaking about cannibalism right there. Like, there's, there's always critiques like we Catholics are like cannibals or vampires, right? But they get, I think the John puts that there for a reason. He mentions like they get really angry with Jesus. Jesus does not backtrack there. So this is the diff, this is why it's real and not a metaphor. Jesus doesn't say, "Hey, I was uh, speaking symbolically here." He doesn't. He doesn't backtrack. He affirms what he said again. So uh, the is it again? Is it sort of like in chapter eight, in John chapter eight, Jesus, when I, when I went to a seminary, the professor there talked about John chapter eight, where Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees about the temple. And, you know, he says before Abraham was, I am um, the professor in that class. I remember him saying he could tell Jesus was hollering. He was hollering. You know that word in West Virginia, don't you? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hollering. What are they hollering about? So do you think that the emotion of Jesus for his passion is coming out in, in that book more than maybe the others? Um, I think I think that John, the book of John is definitely where we Catholics get the most of our theology from, though I will say that. And um, he is, I, I'm not saying that, John, you get more of the faith there than you do in the other ones, but I am, I do think that when it comes to doctrines like the Eucharist and You're right. Yeah, I feel You're like right. John, John's the key to all of that in the Catholic faith. And uh, the wedding feasts were. Uh, his mother pushes the envelope. She kind of forced his hand. Right. To me, Mama Eagle picking up a chick. <laughs> right? I mean, to me, it looked like Jesus wasn't quite ready to go. It wasn't go time. And they're at this wedding, and they run out of the, the wine, and she goes up to him and, you know, lets him know there's a problem, and he says, woman, it's not my time yet, and she basically, oh, it's your time right now. <laughs> you know, we need some wine, so go ahead and make that wine. It's so the best wine, you, too. Well, two, two houses down from me, a, um, one of the executives from EWTN is my neighbor, but she's renting her house out to a Pentecostal preacher because she's in Denver running EWT in the Pacific Northwest. But that Pentecostal preacher goes to the chapel at EWT to pray a lot, you know, because he says he feels like he can pray that. So why would a... Uh, Pentecostal professor go to a opposing an opposing denomination 
to pray because he feels something. Do you believe he's feeling the Eucharist? I believe he definitely feels the because you know when Catholics go into the church, we genuflect in front of the altar, and that is acknowledging the presence of Christ in the in the temple. And I'm not. I do feel. I do think Pentecostals do feel a special connection to the Holy Spirit. And yeah, yeah. I feel it. I feel like when he goes in there, he he just feels that connection. Um, I've. I sometimes uh, also visit our local um, Eastern Orthodox Church because I'm also really fascinated with them. Their theology Me versus Catholic, their theology versus Catholics is a whole other discussion. But uh, and, and you know what? It, it don't they don't bother me a bit, man. They no. get mad at me. I bring. I consider them Catholic, and when my Orthodox, when they want to talk about something, I say, "Look, dude, I'm the wrong guy." to talk to because you're my Catholic brother and I don't give a dang about the two or three things you give a dang about. Right. I'm not even debating them or talking, but they, they fascinate me too. Yeah. The priest there has told me before that he has had Pentecostals visit and like they just break down in tears right, as soon as they uh, even walk into mm. the building because they feel the presence of the Holy Spirit so deeply. So, um, as far as speaking in tongues, as far as speaking in tongues and all that goes, I've always been a little skeptical about that. But um, I do feel like they do have a really deep connection in the Catholic Church, yeah. both the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. I feel like the presence—you can feel the presence as soon as you walk in the building. Coptic. You ever been to Coptic before? I've not. No, my parish—the parish close to me—is Antiochian. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been to the Coptic Church, and for those that don't know, um, you know, when the apostles scattered to spread the word in the church and everything, you know, from what I understand, they forgot that one of them went down to Africa, and then they later on ran across them, full-blown Catholic church, a little bit of differences, Coptic in Egypt. And, man, I walked in, I went to the, I went to St. Michael the Archangel, in Redwood City, California, and I walked in on the mass. You know, you talk about some incense. <laughs> man, you needed man, you needed fog lights in that place just to walk around. It was like a cloud. And it's like my you know, you could smell that incense and you could barely see that priest. It's like watching a ghost movie. You know, he's there and he's like ten times more decked out than a Catholic priest. I mean, he's got robes on top of robes and all these turbans and stuff. And it was just, it was just like being at Mass to me. The, the Divine Liturgy, I think, is a really beautiful service. And I also recently, have you been to an all-Latin Mass? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, re I recently went to my first all-Latin Mass. And it felt now, really now, when you in traditional Latin Mass, the Latin Mass that, yeah. Right. Yeah, now you know it all. I went to a mass in Palo Alto, California at St. Thomas, and they had an announcement about the mass in Latin. And this was before I had ever been to a Latin mass. And a lot of people out there think when you say Latin mass, oh, that's the Spanish one, you know, down here. 
Well, that's the Spanish mass. That's where the Mexicans <laughs> go. Latin mass. But they had the mass in Latin, but it wasn't the Latin mass. I don't know what you call that. But I was like, I thought this was Latin mass, but it isn't Latin. I don't know what that's called. A couple of weeks ago, I was visiting in California, and I had an aunt that lives in Fresno. And they have an, an all-Latin they have an all aunt. mass there. You got an aunt? Mm -hmm. An aunt in Fresno? Yeah, I, sometimes you hear me speak. Sometimes you hear me speak proper. Sometimes it's all proper on me now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but she's um, Yeah, the Latin mass was really different. The priest turns his back to the congregation the whole time, just like in the Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. and mm -hmm. whenever we whenever we take communion, everybody went up and knelt at the altar rail, and he put it. He right. dipped it. He dipped it in the wine and. Put it on your tongue. So that was that was definitely a main difference. And there was a lot more attention spent of praying the rosary and things like that at the Latin Mass too. And I thought it was really beautiful. And I wish that we. I'm not saying I'm not saying the English Mass stinks, but I'm saying I do wish uh, we could have that option a little more. Yeah, I'm blessed to where we do have Latin Mass here, and then at our in O-Mass, Nervous Order Mass, it's so proper and legit that even the rad trads will comment on my videos and say, yeah, man, you started going to the Latin Mass. Yeah, yeah thank you. But uh, the Latin Mass here, they do the, now, they do the, the newer Mass, some places here where the priest does face the East, like in the Latin Mass. For instance, at Blessed Sacrament, when the EWTN priests do the Mass up there, they face the uh, altar. And then Father Bean, right down here at St. Teresa, he's a professor too. He faces the, he faces the altar when he does the NO Mass. And probably that would surprise some people. Have you been to the Melkite yet? I've not, no. How far are you from, um, how long would it take you to get to Washington, D.C. from where you're at? I'm about four hours. I did go to the National Basilica of the Sacred Heart there last year. I was really blown away with the beauty of that, of that church. What does your church look like? Is it, is it pretty um, traditional or is it modern looking? No, it's it's very traditional. There's a the crucifix and the church behind the altar is very very vivid. Um, lots of stained glass windows, and I, my church is called Saint Francis. It's a Saint Francis de Sales parish in Beckley, and um, yeah, it, it's really old. It's over a hundred years old, I believe. What do all, how do the people up there where you live in your community, how do they regard you as a Catholic? Does it ever come up among friends or whatever well, in the community? Well, my wife uh, is still Protestant. She's, she's discerning her faith. And um, she, I told you she grew up in the Church of Christ tradition, but now she goes with me to mass, but she also goes to Lutheran Lutheran services. 
And I do feel like some that's Lutherans are as close, or as far as Protestants goes, they're as close to Catholic as it gets. So I feel like sometimes um, my people in the Catholic Church kind of look at us like I do, like I wish she would convert too, right? Like because she'll not take communion when I do, for instance. So that, that's noticeable. But um, you know, there's a lot of people really traditional like that. She's on a journey, and uh, you're not alone. There's a lot of on-fire Catholics with a spouse. Um, if you go on my channel here, if you look up, um, uh, what's her name? Maria Manzati, she goes by, uh, Catholic Caritas on Instagram. Long brown hair. She's in a mixed marriage. She calls it interfaith marriage. Right. Mixed marriage. Her husband, I think, is non-denominational. And he's he's not anti-Catholic. He just can't see John 6. It's stuck in his crawl, John chapter 6. And then uh, Matt Poole, that's on my channel. He's got a, a podcast called Unapologetically Catholic. His wife is still, you know, trailing along. Uh, it, it's common. You're not alone. You're in the South, man. Yeah. Even in West Virginia, you're Southern West Virginia. Yeah, she even, got a lot of that. Even with her, she um, doesn't really want to talk about with her family because even Lutherans are a radical departure for from what she grew up with. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not pushing her in a corner. I'm, I'm letting her think for herself. Um, she's she's a she's a fourth grade teacher, and she's she's very bright, intelligent herself, so she can make up her own mind. She knows where I stand yeah. on issues. We've had disagreements, like um, in the Lutheran Church, the minister of hers is also the minister of the Episcopalian Church because of both those churches are <laughs> in communion, and. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. See, I learn every day from my get from my guests. You guys are smart. And uh, her minister came in and gave the speech about how we should, in the church, accept LGBTQ and allow those marriages inside the church and things like that. I told her, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm always welcome. I'm always welcoming. I'm not." I'm not um, anti any of that, but inside the church, that's wrong. And um, like, that's false doctrine. So uh, we've had our disagreements about some things, but she is still, she's definitely on her journey as I was on mine. And I took her by complete surprise. I think when we got married, I thought she thought we'd go back to like a Baptist church or something. Then we went on this whole other journey and so her her journey is just as valid as mine and uh yeah. you asked me at the beginning by the way i wanted to speak for a couple minutes on this about some things that i'm still kind of iffy on with the catholic church um of course being a protestant we were taught to like read the bible and the bible is the full text and um, I know, historically speaking, that 
sacred tradition is just as important as the Bible's. But uh, purgatory, of course, is still is always a controversial issue, and uh, I've kind of grown to be comfortable with the idea, but I'm still a little, I'm still frankly a little iffy with it, um, just because I don't see a lot of scriptural support for it. But it is part of the tradition, and Eastern Orthodox, they don't believe in it, uh, so. Uh, that's something I'm still trying to discern for myself as far as now, the rest of them. When Dante's in, Infernal, okay, when I worked for EWTN, there was a professor from St. Thomas in Houston. That was his class that he taught. On, wasn't there like three parts to that, to Dante's? Yeah, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. So they go to all three. This this fellow has written books and done. That's his thing. And I, I sat through his class, and he had a thing in there where you you would know this more than me. So the dude goes up to Saint Peter, who's in charge of letting you in or out, you know. And there's some guys sitting there in the lobby that weren't going anywhere. And he asked one of them what the deal was. And they said, you can decline purgatory. If you go up to St. Peter and just say, I think I'll pass, then they'll let you pass. But you have to wait over there till you go on to the big house. And I remember him saying that. Are you familiar with him? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's at the very beginning of the Paradiso, the last the last part, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, I, I understand that um, it's almost like a cleansing process that you have to go through. Your sins have consequences. Even if God forgives your sins, they have consequences. You spend the consequences being cleansed in purgatory by the God's holy fire. Um, I I'm slow, I'm slowly coming around on it, but it's it's some it's definitely something that especially for somebody who grew up Baptist, it's still a really uh, strange concept. And but you know the Baptists preach it and don't know they're preaching it. Every time they go to Luke, was it Luke sixteen or seventeen with the the rich man and poor Lazarus and Abraham's bosom, they're talking about it right there and they're preaching from the pulpit. They just don't, just they don't know what they're preaching. They just use slightly different yeah. vocabulary, right? Yeah, because, you know, Jesus never used the word hell. It didn't even exist. That was a, a, a King James word, you know, from a Norse word, H-E-L. But, uh, you know, he was talking about Guyana. And that's not even a word we know. So purgatory. Purgatory, purgatory. That's really what they should call it, purgatory, because that's what it is. But it's not really defined, you know. Yeah, it's it's, it's part it's part of the tradition. It's extra scriptural, I think. But there's like that much in, in my catechism about it. And my priest. Now, let me tell you about my priest. This might make you feel good, or might make you mad, but. My priest, when it came time for purgatory class, he basically said this, okay? He said, 
We don't know a lot about it, and it may not take a long time. It might be like walking through underneath the shower right into the presence of God. He said, it may be a beautiful thing. He said, but there's not a lot in the official, you know, dogmas and the catechism. There's not that much. And people make it. I don't even think about purgatory, to be honest with you. Yeah, for me, it wasn't. For me, it wasn't a deal breaker in my conversion. I'm still, I'm still thinking deeply about it. But compared to the other truths that I noticed, like the Eucharist and the, sac- and the sacraments, I thought that, that was just nitpicking. Whenever I was going through the conversion process, um, the other thing relates to purgatory, and that's indulgences. So um, mm-hmm. you know, from the historic. You know, Protestants sell indulgences. Yeah, well, I'm not aware of that. Yeah, that's you yeah. have to explain that one to me. You ever watch um, Benny Hinn or any yeah. of these televangelists? The the prosperity. That's what that is. Prosperity gospel, They're, right? That's exactly. You sow your seed, and you and God uh, give you thirty, sixty, a hundred fold. Um, if you need a healing, if you need a job opportunity, answer to prayer, so a financial seed. You hear it all day long on these charismatic channels, Joyce Meyer, Andrew Womack, Kenneth Copeland, Gloria Copeland, or Roberts was the big one on it. I used to work for him. Um, have a need, sow a seed, seed time and harvest. That's an indulgence. You know, you know, we had these things called the Lottie Moon offering. You know, where you gave extra offerings for the Lottie Moon for missionary work and all, and asked God to bless the offering. And they just, you know, I just think it's semantic sometimes. Yeah, you're exactly the way right. Because when I was a Pentecostal, I'd get up there. And I remember one time, this is before I was Catholic, I opened up a Bible, it's Luke 6, 38. Give it shall be given unto you. Good measure, press down, shake them together. Run over, shall men give to your bosom. Not God. It says, shall men give to your bosom. I said, if you have any kind of prayer request, any kind of need, sickness, marriage, your kids going crazy, you come up here and lay your money on this open Bible where Jesus said, give it, shall be given to you. Man, you know how many people piled money up on that Bible? The whole church came down there and piled, they call it a pile offering. They went up there, man, it was the biggest offering we ever had. <laughs> and then the next week, it was testimony time, and all these people, yeah, I put my money on the Word of God on Luke 6 in that Bible. Just like you said, and got a job offer, or someone paid for my transmission to be replaced. I mean, I heard it scared the daylights out of me because it's an easy way to make money. That's right. And uh, I was thinking, I'm never saying this again at offer time because it was too easy to make money. And it's like I was giving everyone hope, and that hope and faith together. You know, God delivered, but I'm 
Is that not an indulgence if I tell you, if you give God your very best financial seed today, to my church, by the way, to Catholic for Rednecks, by the way, post office box, then God's going to do a miracle for you? That's, that's, that's process. Very right, you're very, that's very much an indulgence, for, for sure. Um, it's just go, the way I... Yeah, if you go back and look through the... If you go back and look through the history of the medieval Catholic Church, they certainly did that. And um, that's how they built a lot of those big buildings over in Rome. That's how they raised money for it. I do feel like Martin Luther was right to call them out for it. Um, Martin Luther is kind of a tragic figure in a way because all he wanted to do was cleansed the church and he created a monster that uh, even by the time he was, he was end of his life he was he was feeling guilty about it because he created a monster with all of this all these different Protestant groups springing up so uh, and his three protégés disagreed with him split off and went in different theological directions it's just a, you know a shit show is the only thing you can say a shit show. That's the most Christian word I can come up with to describe the reference. And, you know, it's not like even they that they reformed anything. You know, it's like a school system. If somebody breaks off and starts an entirely different school system with a different principal, different textbooks, different meeting at place, then it's not a reformed school system. It's a new school system. Separate. I just... But I wouldn't worry about that purgatory part. Um, I saw somebody in the comments just now post, um, does, it, does it help to think about it like it's a final cleansing? And yeah, it does It does help me to think of it that way. Um, Got one for you. Do you remember at the Last Supper when Jesus was bathing their feet and Peter said, not just my feet, but my whole body. I'm such an angel. I'm yeah. such a good guy. You remember that? Yeah. And he said, chill out with the drama. All you, you're forgiven. All you need is your feet wiped off. Did Jesus say that? He did. He said, you're forgiven. This is just to wipe your feet off. So that's what I'm looking at. Before you go into the big party, you might have something on your shoe. <laughs> that you walk on something on the way. Wipe your damn feet off. Where you come in here? I never thought of that verse that way before, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's there for a reason. And, you know, um, Taylor Marshall, do you know who he is? Taylor Marshall. He did a teaching on purgatory and limbo. It was so good. It, I mean, it was good. You can still look it up. And he was talking about the word limbo. The, the root word, here I am talking to an English professor, is limb like a branch of a river or a branch of a tree. And the main trunk would be heaven or the main river would be heaven. But this big branch off right next to the main body, a branch, a big old round branch. I mean, you're still hooked in, but you're a little bit off the main thing. That's the way he described limbo. And 
You know, I've had people describe uh, purgatory as being like a kind of a in-between area where maybe you're not, you know, Mother Angelica said, if you're at Walmart and you see somebody you don't like and you turn around and go the other way, you're going to purgatory because that is an attachment, a continual sin you're still wrapped up in. And you ain't going up to the throne to sit in Jesus' lap with attachments. So she says it's to get rid of attachments. I don't know. I don't know. That's that definitely makes sense. Makes sense to me. Uh, even <clears throat> there's still probably sins people haven't confessed when they when they pass, and uh, even things that you don't think about to even bring up in confession that um, you still have on your soul, just like you mentioned. So that that. I'm growing more comfortable with the idea that that was something that I definitely struggled with at first. And, uh, I don't think, think that in, it's not in the creed. It's not in the, our father. It's not in the sacraments unless you can tie it into the, uh, you know, last rite somehow. I don't know. I just, I don't, it depends on, where you're at in your Catholic, uh, so you know you can go to mass a long time some places and never hear anything about purgatory. Then you go listen to someone like Father Chad Ripperger. You know they talk about it all the time. I, don't know. I mentioned that the Eastern Orthodox do not believe in purgatory, but they but just like you mentioned with Protestants with Abraham's bosom, they still kind of do. Like if you go to go to one of their services, if somebody just passes, they'll have prayers for the dead. Why pray to the dead for the dead unless uh, they're in some type of like middle state? So um, they 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 have the same idea, but they just don't put that word on it. That's, that's yeah, kind of you got okay. in in Maccabees when they went and they gave an offering for their for the dead guys in case they sin, to loose them from their sins. So they're paying money to the priesthood, right? They're giving money to the priesthood to pay off potential sins that their brothers may have committed that's keeping them from entering in, right? I mean, that was in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is what Jesus used in Paul, right? So if that wasn't right, I think Jesus might have stood up and said, oh, this part of the Septuagint, it ain't right. But he didn't. He preached out of it because he preached about Abraham's bosom. So I don't, I mean, in Abraham's bosom, the, the, the uh, rich man, was interceding for his brothers. He was doing intercession for his brothers. That's intercession of the saints. He ain't even in a saint. He's in the wrong compartment. And he's interceding for his brothers. I have five brothers on the earth. Please warn them not to come to this place. That's, that's a, 
He's not a saint, but that's a saint praying for us. So, yeah, when you, it's funny that you mentioned saints. That's the last thing I want to bring up. That's actually something that I did not have any trouble with in my conversion process. Like, like really quickly early on, I got the idea of intercession, and um, it's a good idea to ask someone holier than you to pray for you. It's just like asking, it's like me saying, hey, would you please pray, pray for me? That's that's a concept. Again, Protestants will get worried about the middlemen, but uh, that's something that I found logical in my in my own mind. And especially Mary is the greatest of, of the saints. Uh, that's like, it's pretty clear in Luke when Gabriel says, gives her the blessing, right? That she is, that she is um, greatest among women. And so um, you have to be to give birth to, the, to Jesus Christ. So yeah. uh, that's something, that's actually something I had no problem with. And all that whole thing was extremely logical to me. So It's weird how different issues will um but, you know, it's no different than the Protestant side of Christianity. They have all kinds of, do I believe in tongues or not believe in tongues? Do I believe in a pre-trib rapture? Do I believe you have to be baptized? No, you don't have to be baptized. Are we saved forever? No, we could. I mean, they've got a um, hundred more issues than we do. They just don't see them. They, they don't see them because... I was talking to Eric the other day, and he's, you know, why does people leave the Catholic Church? I said, people leave every church. The Baptist, Lutheran, non-denominational, people leave those churches in droves. And it's not because of Vatican II. <laughs> they, you know, everybody in the Catholic world blames it on Vatican II. Well, the Protestants don't have Vatican II, and they got the same problems. People don't like going to church. They see the hypocrisy of the clergy. They see this big holier-than-thou Catholic church telling them, you can't use birth control, you can't be same-sex. But And then they see behind them all the, you know, the scandals. So they can't, they can't marry the two, but it's the same way. In the Protestant church, they're eat up with scandals. They got more famous scandals than we do. Jim Baker... All that stuff, I don't know if you remember. You weren't around in the 80s, were you? No. Oh, God, man. It was a shit show. Every Pentecostal Protestant preacher in the world was in trouble. All kinds of orgies, cocaine, false miracles, selling. It's no big deal when they do it. But let a Catholic, you know, put out a report that there were Catholic priests molesting kids in the 50s and 60s. And it's a big deal right now. But yeah. I don't I didn't I didn't speak <laughs> early I didn't speak earlier to why I stopped being a Protestant in my early twenties. But that was kind of the one of the things that drove me away. I kind of felt like evangelical Christianity was more concerned with politics even than them preaching the gospel. And I'm not, but I'm, I like to think of myself as in the middle on a lot of the issues, like uh, on a lot of social most, issues. 
Yeah, on a lot of social issues, I tend to be pretty conservative, but on some other issues like taxation and stuff, I, I tend to be a little more liberal. And, and whenever mm-hmm. whenever you went to these evangelical churches and it became more about politics than preaching the gospel, and I thought that's that all they got. That's all they got, right? That's all they got, man. I mean, they got, okay, we got you born again. We, uh, we, we got you off the alcohol. Now let's go to politics. Cause I, you know, it's, it's a very limited, it's a very, very boring church life to be, to, to live in that world. Very boring. You know, there's nothing to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you think it was so boring. They would have church every day to have something to do like we do, but they don't, man. You go hear a boring sermon and sing the same songs you've been singing since you were 14 and you hear it and, and then you go eat some fried chicken out back and, the, <laughs> and that's it. Then it's time to, turn on, time to turn on Fox News and raise hell, you know? Yeah, I'm definitely much more spiritually fulfilled being a Catholic than I was, especially with the comfort of the sacraments than I was when I was a teenager in, in the Baptist church. So much, much for the reasons you say. That's that's just not as fulfilling of spiritual life as being a Catholic is. But you know, being a Catholic's like you know, I, I always think I drink. I got this reoccurring dream of going back to a nice house I used to own, and it was pretty cool house. And uh, in the dream, I go back to the house, and I'm constantly discovering another level or wing to the house, open the door. I never noticed. Holy, there's a man cave you wouldn't believe. And go down this door, and I got a theater. And I keep having this dream, but it's a mirror of of being Catholic. It's just unending, you know? Yeah, even even being Catholics, even influencing my professional life. Uh, I'm an English professor, but Recently at my school, uh, our philosophy teacher left. So I'm actually going to go back and take some uh, courses in Catholic philosophy from a Catholic school and further continue my um, intellectual growth through the through the Catholic tradition. So uh, it's, um, it's, it's amazing how deep, and like you said, one door leads to another. And, especially with how it influences your mind for sure. Well, I'm going to, um, I'm going to find that, that priest in, in um, Houston and see if I can hook you up with his Dante stuff. You know, maybe like that. I don't know. My son read it. And when I, when I was in yoga, I used to take yoga a lot. And I remember at, at real estate school, my classmate, that sat in front of me would come from yoga class to to real estate class wearing her yoga, you know, tank top. She had that thing tattooed on her back in old, like old, you know, timey writing. And I'm like reading her back (laughs) in class. And, And I said, what is that? She says, she quoted a passage from Dante, just like a bookworm. And she said, I got it down my back. No, I only saw the top <laughs> part. But uh, I've never read it. So 
Uh, it's I tried to it on audio tape before. Yeah, it's, it's you, a, one more it's thing. Read. One more thing about literature, and I'll let you go. I got I got an appointment myself. Do you know that a uh, female writer, Southern Gothic, Flannery That's her. Yeah. You ever read her stuff? Oh yeah, I teach. I teach her story. Uh, a good man is hard to find. I teach it a lot in my courses. Okay, which story is it where they're going on? They're going to on vacation, and they pile in their car, and they're rich, and the, the, their mother or grandmother's taking them, and That's they it. hear about, what's that called? It's called A Good Man is Hard to Find. Yeah, and then when they're in that ditch, and and the bad guys are walking the family one by one, and pow, and the, it's, man, it's a scary story. It's morbid as hell. You know, the, the misfit, the a, misfit in the story yeah. just does bad things just because he can. Right? That's his whole thing. Yeah. The, and the, way she, the way she read that story, matter of factly, when she got to the part about those people being executed by, it was terrifying, man. That was a scary story. But like Tolkien, did you, did you already know that J.R.R. Tolkien had all the Catholic stuff in Hobbit. Did you already know that when you were coming up? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to further explore that because it's been probably since I was a kid since I read those books. But I would I would be interested in rereading it through that lens. Well, you know the tavern that him and C.S. Lewis hung out in in London. It's it goes three stories down underground, and in the bottom floors were J.R. Tolkien and. And C.S. Lewis and the other one, can't think of it, where they would drink and talk about things for years. But I, I had fish and chips down there in that place. So, um, have you read any of my son's books or heard of them? Um, I don't know that I have not. Yeah, he's all. Uh, you and him are into the same stuff. And uh, he's written a. a book called Stork and he's written a book called The Shriving Place. Do you know what a shriving place is? I do not, no. It's it's an old word for the confessional booth. The shriving place. You you and him might get along. <laughs> I'll see you some <laughs> but I'm gonna have you on again pretty soon. I enjoy talking with you. Yeah, very much enjoy talking with you. I'm glad you gave me a forum to tell my story. So thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll have you on. Let's talk about Dante some more. Maybe you can teach us a class on it or something. Yeah, I'll be, I'd love to. Okay, man. Well, check the email later. I'm going to send you a bunch of links, okay? All right. Sounds good. Okay. I love you, you man. I appreciate you. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you.